morning we're going to open our Bibles and we're going to hear from the Lord. Uh, one of the things that uh, is remarkable about our church is that um, we recognize that there are two hills that we will die on, uh, two values that are greater than any other, and those are, number one, that the Bible is the Word of God, and the second one is that any human being uh, in this room or in the world can know and experience the love of God through Jesus Christ. And those are the two things that we lift up uh, all of the time. So this morning we are going to open the Bible and we're going to look at a little book in the Bible called James. And for the next several weeks we're going to be studying that book and we've entitled this series of messages Survivor 2015. So would you would uh, just do me the honor of extending your hands like this as a kind of a, a spirit of receptivity. And uh, by doing this, you're just telling the Lord that you're ready to receive His Word. And so, Father, here we are, your children. Our hands are extended. Our hearts are open. Our minds are clear. Our ears are unplugged. We desire to hear from your Word today. By faith, we will receive it. We will embrace it. We will believe it. And we will live it by the power of the gospel. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all of God's people together said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, as I mentioned, uh, today we're beginning a brand new series of messages uh, entitled Survivor 2015. How many of you desire to survive in 2015? Okay, great, about half of you. That's, that's great. Yeah, so maybe you especially need to hear this message today. <clears throat> Some of you that are new to our denomination, and by the way, I'll say in advance, forgive me for my voice, uh, I've had this virus all week. Uh, I, I'm not contagious anymore, but it's done a number on my voice because of coughing so much, so... Uh, I'll do my best. I've got my little trusty water here, so we'll ask the Lord to get me through this time. So those of you who are new to our denomination, which is the Evangelical Covenant Church, may not realize that our roots are in Swedish Lutheranism. So if you go back 150 years, most of the people in covenant churches would have names such as Anderson and Bjorklund and uh, names like that. Um, similarly, the hit TV show Survivor, how many of you watch Survivor? Okay, a few confessions there, that's good. Uh, the show Survivor was derived from a Swedish TV series called Expedition Robinson, uh, originally created in 1997 by Charlie Parsons. The series premiered in the United States on May 31st, 2000 on CBS, and it's been one of the most popular television shows ever since the summer of 2000. The premise of the show is this. Contestants are isolated in the wilderness, places like Fiji, Borneo, New York City. No, not really. And <laughs> they face numerous obstacles, adversities, and adversaries until one last woman or man 
remains standing. That's the lone survivor. In our world today, there is much survivalism talk, isn't there? Uh, there are many websites where you can go and buy caches of food and supplies for a month, a year, 10 years at a time. People are worried about surviving because of a potential nuclear holocaust, ISIS, global financial collapse. And many believers in our world today, and I happen to be one of those, many believers in the world believe that things are kind of rushing to an end in our world. Uh, the Bible says that as Christ came once 2,000 years ago, He will come again a second time, literally break through the eastern sky and will rule and reign in the world and the universe. And what His promise is always the same. It's this, I will make all things new. So survival is really critical to each and every one of us. Much talk of survival. Maybe you feel at this point in your life, or maybe you have in some other point, somewhat like Charlie Brown in this Peanuts comic strip. Lucy encourages Charlie Brown by saying, look at it this way, Charlie Brown. These are your bitter days. These are the days of your hardship and struggle. The next frame goes on, but if you just hold your head up high, and keep on fighting, you'll triumph. Gee, do you really think so, Lucy? Charlie asks. As she walks away, Lucy says, frankly, no. I mean, it's kind of an ouch when Lucy tells you that uh, your bitter days are here to stay. Perhaps you've felt like Charlie Brown, that these are your bitter days. A lot of people are afraid of the future, asking the question, how do we survive in an almost unsurvivable world? How do we survive in a world filled with chaos and racism and anger? How do we survive in a world that is broken and lost? Let me share a quote with you from a very smart person. Here's what he says. The earth is degenerate, degenerating these days. Bribery and corruption abound. Children no longer mind their parents. Everyone wants to write a book. And it is evident that the end of the world is fast approaching. End quote. I think most of us would agree with this author, even recognizing that it's interesting to note that the author of this quote was found on an Assyrian tablet dated 2,000 years before Christ. <laughs> 4,000 years ago, the kids still weren't minding their parents. And everybody wanted to write a book. Survival has always been mankind's goal and desire. Now let's make this very personal. How, as a 21st century Christ follower, do we not only survive, but survive victoriously? How do we survive in a broken, hate-filled, running out of gas, scorched earth that we call home? Well, to find survival help, I would like to look at a relatively modern 
book. It's not 4,000 years old. It's only 2,000 years old. And it's called the book of James from the Bible. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you, it's towards the end of the New Testament, uh, invite you to turn to James chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you can use your iPhones, your smartphones, your iPads. We also put it on the sermon notes and we'll put it on the screen as well. We want to give you many opportunities to allow the Word of God to surround you. And so at this point in the sermon, this is what I always tell you. What am I going to tell you? Read your Bibles, right? It's an amazing book. It's an ancient book that is as relevant and modern as, you, as anything else you could possibly read. It is the Word of God. It's the ancient Word of God that is relevant today for each and every one of you. So read your Bibles. Uh, discover some amazing things in there. Uh, it's a remarkable, remarkable book, and it's for you. So today... I want us to look at this great book that we call James. Now, let me give you a little, <clears throat> excuse me, background information on James. So, who was the author of the book of James? Anybody want to guess? James, very good. You guys are smarter than you look. And uh, James, the only problem with that is that there are seven James, different ones, mentioned in the New Testament. Okay, so the idea is which James wrote James? Here's the honest answer. We don't know. Okay, for 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure that out. Now, I will tell you what the traditional view is, which I happen to believe, but I am saying that if you're a Bible scholar, you can go and try and discover, and there's a lot of options out there. But here's what tradition has told us. Tradition has told us that this James that wrote the book of James was the younger brother of who? of Jesus. Okay. Now, again, we, even though we don't know that for sure, I like it for a lot of different reasons, and we won't go into all of those details, but it, it, just, it just feels right. Okay. So, from now on, I will be talking about James as if he was a Jesus kid brother. Now, we know that James didn't come to faith in God until he was much older. I mean, come on. I know my brother I know the way he behaves at home, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not buying it, okay, that he's the Messiah, right? But later, James had a remarkable trans, transformation in his own life, and he recognized and received the Lord, his brother, as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We also know that James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, so he had a very influential position in the early church in Jerusalem. The book of James was written probably somewhere between 55 and 60 A.D. Okay, this is a full generation after Jesus had been crucified and rose again, right? That happened in about, if you understand the, the, term, the, the dating, that happened about 29 A.D. And now this is about 20-some years after that. So James is writing this book in a specific context, and the context is a broken, chaotic, unbelievably wicked world. Now, what made the world, at least the known world then in Asia Minor, so wicked was this idea that uh, Christianity had to be squashed. It started right after the resurrection, all the rumors flying around that it, Jesus wasn't really dead and he didn't really raise from the dead, all of those things. But all of these things happened in a context of 
Christians, Christ followers, believers, disciples, uh, being persecuted. Persecuted by the Roman government, persecuted by the Jewish religious uh, uh, people, persecuted by everybody. But the more they were persecuted, the more that their movement grew strong. It was remarkable. I mean, we know that at least there were 513 Christ followers when Jesus ascended into heaven. That, those are named, okay? We know that many. But then in the first year after that, there was another 10,000 that came to Christ. And next second year, 25,000. And this just kept growing and growing. And no matter how much persecution and pressure was put on the Christ followers, this movement grew exponentially. It was remarkable what was happening. There was economic boycotts. Christians weren't allowed to hold jobs of any substance. Uh, there was all kinds of housing boycotts. Nope, can't live there. Nope, can't live there. All of these things were happening under the pressure of Rome. Rome hated Christ's followers because they were taking away taxes and taking away attention from the one true God, which was the Caesar, in this case, starting in A.D. 54, uh, Nero. Nero re reigned from 54 to 68, and under his time of being emperor of Rome, it was a reign of terror against Christians. He built a Colosseum and he named it um, Nero's Circus. Uh, take a look at what that looks like. Nero's Circus, it was a Colosseum built and it was built for one reason alone. Even though it was used for other, it was used for games like the Greek games and things like that, but it was used, Nero's Circus was used to exterminate and eliminate Christians. That's, that was its purpose, its stated purpose. They would put Christians in there and they would feed them to starving lions, tigers, black, Asian black bears, dogs, all kinds of things. And they used to tell the men, men, if you deny Christ, if you say, no, I don't believe in Christ, I'm just joking, really. He said, they said, we'll let your wife and your children go. You'll still be killed, but your wife and children will be able to go. Not one time do we have in any record of history, Josephus or any other non-Christian historians, there's not one record of one Christ follower ever denying Christ at the face of death for themselves or for their families. That is remarkable. That's never happened in history before. So take a look at uh, some of these pictures. Now, these are depicted, uh, what it actually was, they're not actually pictures, but these are the kinds of things that were happening, and these Christians were being destroyed and uh, it was happening, and they would sometimes kill so many Christians that nightfall would come, and they would dip Christians in oil, put them up on crosses, and light them so they continue destroying more Christians. It was into this context. Remember, that happened from 54 to 68. James wrote somewhere between 55 and 60. This was going on when James was written. So you remember, now you can recognize how remarkable it must have been to live in that day and to believe that how many more days do I have to live until my life is snuffed out? And how, in heaven's name, do I survive this kind of persecution? That was the question that was asked of every Christ follower. How do I survive these days. Take your Bibles now, if you will, or your devices, and turn to James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And as I'm reading the text this morning, and by the way, we'll be going through almost the entire book of James 
in the next eight weeks. So if you want to, if you're uh, one of those kids that went to Catholic school and sat on the front row, you want to be reading ahead and studying ahead and kind of seeing what's going on, right? So um, James is a short epistle, so you could actually read it every day. But I'd suggest, because it's very deep, that you just read one chapter a day. I just keep reading it over and over again for the next eight weeks. So this is James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of God for the people of God at Hope Covenant Church. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes, Jewish believers scattered abroad. Greetings. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of every kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Now, right there, stop and put yourself in A.D. 60. <laughs> okay, not 2015 in Chandler, Arizona, where everything's pretty easy, right? Put yourself in Jerusalem under the Roman rule in A.D. 60. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested... Your endurance has a chance to grow, so let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Verse 5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking, but when you ask Him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. Now again, put yourself in the context of what's going on in A.D. 60 in Jerusalem, okay? When he's talking about this divided loyalty, you're either in or you're not. You're either, yes, I follow God, or you're not. And that's what he's talking about. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Believers who are poor have something to boast about. So some of you that are poor say, oh, cool, I get something to boast about. What is that, right? For God has honored them, and those who are rich should boast that God has humbled them. They will fade away like little flower in the field. The hot sun rises and the grass withers. The little flower droops and falls, and its beauty fades away. In the same way, the rich will fade away with all their achievements. God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that is God has promised to those who love Him. Isn't that a wonderful passage? Now, I hope that you're able to put yourself 2,000 years ago into that context. James is writing to people who are just trying to hang on. They're trying to keep their kids safe. They're trying to feed their kids. They're trying to find a place to live. They're just trying to hang on. But they are so devoted to Jesus Christ. They're so devoted to the following. It was called the way. They were so devoted to the way that they would do anything, yes, even to death. To follow Jesus. In this context, uh, the author, James, writes about some practical advice, some things that we can do today, even though our lives are much easier than they were back then, things that we can do to survive 
in 2015, the way that they survived in AD 60. So we're going to look at the text and kind of take it apart a little bit. The first thing I'd like you to notice is the word for testing. The word testing, it's the Greek word para, parasmos, and it means a testing that is directed towards an end. Okay, I talked to one of our teenagers uh, today, uh, one of the ones that's going to be baptized uh, next uh, Sunday, and she said she just took the ACT test. How, how many of you remember with terror when you took, yeah, okay, we did, oh no, and uh, she took the ACT test, and of course, how did you do? I think I did good, but there's that sense that, okay, but that test was taken for a reason, a purpose, to kind of evaluate you, right, see where you stand in conjunction with others, and see how you're going to hold up. The testing is not to break you, it's not to make you feel miserable, it's, not, it's to test you to see where you stand in all of this. That's what the word testing, parosmos, means. It, you're to come out stronger and purer when you are tested and you persevere. There's nothing about being seduced into sin. It's about being strengthened by going through a test. Now, the way that that word is used in the New Testament and the Old Testament, both the Greek and the Hebrew, several places where this phrase is used. Uh, one is when a bird is cast out of its nest. Okay, that's the same Greek word, testing. A bird is to test its wings. So there's some purpose in that, right? Purpose is not for the bird to drop and plop on the ground. The purpose is to test its wings and to be on its own. So that's kind of the purpose of the word testing. Another time that it's used in the Old Testament is... Uh, when Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac, that was a test. It was a test to see how Abraham's faith would stand up. Another uh, place that was used is when the children of Israel were given the promised land. They were promised to, to go into the promised land, and they did. It was Canaan. It was, it was occupied by all of these people. Now, God said, listen, I promised you uh, this, uh, this land of milk and honey, which wasn't really as much milk and honey as you would have thought. And, uh, but because they were occupied by foreign armies and by really mean people. Now, God could have said, okay, I promised you this, so I'm going to take all the bad people out of there and you just march in there. He said, no, a test of your faith is I have given you this. I have promised to give you this. Now go in and take it. It was a test of their faith. That's what that word means. So when you think of it, Think of it in this context. What test am I facing that's going to help strengthen my faith? Because here's what most of us do. We face a test, and then we, go some, we pray something like this. Oh, God, I don't want another test. And whine a little bit. And it's too hard. And just take it away so I can be happy and I can have good things in life. Okay, that's kind of the way we pray. We may not say those words. That's exactly what we mean. We say, God, I don't want to go through this. Instead, James is saying, no, you need to look at this a different way. And the first word, by the way, at the end of your sermon notes, there's a place for three words. The first word I want to highlight is consider. Consider. It says, consider what it means to be tested and to face trials. So what God is saying is, listen, I want you to understand that there's a purpose in all of this. Now, did God make all these bad things happen? No. He, God didn't make all those bad things happen. Some, in fact, let's do a little teaching on that real quickly. 
So why do bad things happen? Okay? Three reasons. You've, you've heard this before. Let, let's review. Three reasons why bad things happen. One, and maybe the most pronounced reason that bad things happen, is because we are sinful, broken people. Because guess what? We do bad things. And when we do bad things, that tends to make bad things happen to us. So one of the reasons that we live in this broken world where there's all kinds of testings and trials is because we sin. We do the wrong thing. That's one reason. Uh, A second reason is not because you have sinned or done the wrong thing, but because somebody else has. Somebody drinks too much, they get in a car, and they hit your car and kill you or someone you love. Okay, it's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. But someone else did something wrong, and that is a trial or a test that you have to go through. The third reason that bad things happen around us is because we, quite honestly, we just live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a hate-filled world. We live in a warmonger world. We live in this world that Satan is the god of this world, right? He's the one that's kind of brooding around. Satan is God, and we just live in a broken world. So of those three reasons, you can always say, okay, this test is happening to me because I did something wrong, somebody else did something wrong, or you know what, I just, I, I live in this broken world. And until Christ returns, it's going to always be that way. It just is. And so when you recognize that, it says, consider, that word consider, what it means. So let me tell you what that word consider means. It's a financial word. Those of you who are CPAs, financial people will understand this. It's a financial word that means to evaluate or to deem. Okay, so you evaluate or deem this test. Okay, Lord, I'm going to try and understand this test. Is it because I've, I've sinned, I've done something wrong, and I've brought this on myself? If so, confess and deal with that. If it's somebody else that's caused this, you need to forgive them and deal with that. If it's because you live in a broken world, you need to consider, okay, of all of these things, if I approach these things, if I consider how I fit into these things and approach these things, recognizing that God wants to do something great in my life, then it's not just whining about, oh, I've got another trouble. I've got something else going wrong with me. Oh, yeah, there's always going to be something else. I'm not that person. Instead, I'm saying, Lord, in this test, what do you want me to consider? What do you want me to consider? How do you want me to approach this with a heart that is filled with love and understanding and, and, and grace? Lord, how do you want me to approach this test? See, it's a completely different way of looking at our testings. Too many of us are whiners. That's a Greek word. Yeah. Too many of us are whiners. And we, we think that somehow we're supposed to live these snappy, happy lives all the time. But remember, you live in a broken world. It's not going to be that way. It's just not. But God has promised that if you consider this testing and understand that something is happening there, you can be strengthened in your faith and filled with joy. So, um, trials are inevitable for those three reasons. By the way, if you're parents of teenagers, um, the only way to keep teens teens out of hot water uh, is to put dirty dishes in them, okay? It's the only way you're going to keep your teenagers out of hot water. That's just a little throw-in, you know, just a little little extra. Um, So, trials are inevitable, but also we see here that our response to these trials, these testings, you're not going to like this, your response is your what? responsibility. 
Your response to all of these testings is your responsibility. How are you going to consider them? How are you going to deem them? How are you going to figure them out? Again, that's the consider word, the financial term. How are you going to figure this out? We recognize that God is at work. We try to control our attitude by recognizing that God is in it. God is in the cloud. God is in 9-11. Doesn't create these things. Evil creates these things. But God says, I'm going to be right there in the middle of it. So we recognize the big picture. We face a test and we consider what God is trying to teach us. How we can strengthen and stretch our faith. J.B. Phillips, uh, in his translation, uh, says verse 2 this way. When all kinds of trials crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Isn't that beautiful? Don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. So how do we as Christ followers stay joyful and positive in the midst of these testings? Well, we consider, okay, what's going on? Who's responsible? All of those kinds of things. Many times it's us or someone else or a broken world. We consider. And then the next key word that you write down under number two is to know. To know. Listen to verse three. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. And then verse 3, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. To know, we are to know that there is a purpose behind our troubles. A purpose behind our troubles. Now again, don't misunderstand me. Don't say that, well, God made all these bad things happen. No, no, no. There's reasons why bad things happen. We went over those. There's three reasons, right? So uh, God doesn't make these bad things happen, but here's the promise. God says, if something bad happens to you, if you find yourself in a test or a trial, here's God's promise. I'll be with you in the middle of it. And I'll make something good come out of it. So the best story of that is a story you've all heard probably before It's found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in chapter 50, verse 20. We call it the 50-20 principle. And here's what happened. Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, uh, his brothers are angry at him. They cast him to a pit. They assume he's going to die. They just kind of dissolve, wash their hands of the whole deal. And uh, Joseph disappears. What they didn't realize is that he was picked up by some gypsies and he was taken to Egypt and he was sold there and to slavery, but he worked his way up through the, um, through the Egyptian culture, showing trustworthiness and hard work, and ultimately, over the next 30 years, actually became a prince of Egypt. Can you imagine? This boy that was thrown away, Joseph, finds himself as the prince of Egypt. So things go on, and he's responsible for the uh, economics of all of Egypt. And so being in tune with God and loving God, he knew that there was about ready to be a great famine uh, in the Middle East. And so for seven years, he saved up all this grain so that his people would have food uh, when, um, when they ran out of food. Well, other countries, including Israel, right, did not do the same thing. 
So here's in Israel, these other 11 brothers and their dad are saying, what are we going to do? We're dying of starvation. All of our people are dying, our wives and our, it's just a mess. Well, you better go to uh, Egypt. There's some guy there by the name of uh, Joseph. We don't know who he is or what he's doing, but he's got a lot of grain. See if you can go and buy some from him. So they go over and they have this confrontation. Here's the brothers standing before Joseph. And uh, Joseph doesn't reveal who he is. And they tell their story. And so Joseph finally reveals who he is in 5020 of Genesis. This is what he says. I'll start in verse 19. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? And then verse 20, you intended to harm me, he says to his brothers. Absolutely true. Either you sin, somebody sins, or you live in a broken world. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Now, don't miss the last part of that. But God brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. If the bad thing that you did doesn't happen to me, then God can't turn that around and make many people alive because of me. That's God's promise to you. You need to know that God is at work even when you don't see it. You need to know that even though you can't understand what reason there is for this trial, this testing that I'm going through, this difficult thing, the most difficult thing I'm facing in my life, you can't understand it. You need to know that God is at work. And He has promised, Romans 8.28, Genesis 50.20, He has promised you that, listen, what you don't see, I'm working behind you, I'm working all around you, and I am working for your good. Oh, but... God made this bad thing happen to me. No, this bad thing happened to you for other reasons. But God said, I will take that bad thing and I will make something good come out of it. That is the promise of God. And he says, you need to know this. Consider, but you need to know that God is at work and his purposes will be seen in your life. Isn't that beautiful? That's such a promise from God. Now in that... um, a passage in, the, in verse 3, it talks about endurance and perseverance. Two different words. The word endurance, the, the original meaning of the word means to abide under. Okay, endurance is like you have this weight on you. And you're supposed to somehow function in life with this weight on you. Abide under. Okay? So that's hard enough. But the word perseverance is even more powerful. The word perseverance, the best definition I've ever seen, is based on a Chinese character. And it's a a man who is walking, kind of stumbling along with a dagger in his heart. That's perseverance. That is recognizing that I am wounded, even maybe wounded mortally. Okay, But I am wounded. I can't hardly walk. I can't hardly move. But with this dagger in my heart, somehow, someway, I'm going to continue to stumble along. I am going to make it somehow, some way. That's perseverance. God says, listen, when you recognize that, when you consider and recognize that your faith is going to be stretched, that something good is going to happen to you, you can rejoice in that. When you recognize that behind the pain that you see, behind the testing that you see, is God standing right there. It's the Lord Jesus Christ standing, doing work and doing things that you can't even imagine in the context of this. He said, I promise you that I will be there. And if you persevere, if you endure, I promise you that I will always be there. 
most, most of you know our story. Uh, when our son was killed in 1989, Sherry and I walked through life with this dagger in our heart, just barely figuring how to stumble, how to take a step. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know that God would ever show us anything that would come out of this. We didn't know what was going on. It just felt like evil. It just felt wrong. It just felt bad. And yet over the years, God has revealed over and over again that while we were experiencing that tremendous pain, God was at work doing other things. Did you know that? I don't know how many, maybe Sherry would know, but scores of times in our lives since 1989, God has brought couples into our life who lost a child. That's a fraternity you don't want to be a part of. That's a, that's a group of individuals in the world that you don't want to be a part of. But through our pain and through our perseverance, God enabled us to help other people, to be wounded helpers for other people, to be wounded healers for other people. God says, I know that you'd understand this. I know that was painful. I was with you through the whole time. Let me tell you one thing I want to do through this. I want to use you to bring healing and hope to other people as well. That's God's promise, to be used for his glory, to be instruments of God's healing. That's why we must stand strong in the midst of adversity. Now, as much as those things feel really hard to us, just imagine what it was like in James' day. <laughs> just imagine what it was like. I, I, I don't know if in the next day, my wife and kids are going to be dragged into Nero's circus and they're going to be executed by wild animals. I don't know. That could happen tomorrow. It happened to our neighbors yesterday. But in the midst of that, consider, he would say to a Christ follower, listen, God's at work. I know this is a wicked world and you didn't have anything to do with this and I know it's terrible that's going to happen, but consider that God is at work here. Know that God is going to make something good come out of this. James is calling for a new attitude toward difficulty. An attitude that sees adversity as an opportunity to grow and become mature and whole. Problems and pain, he promises, you can know this, problems and pain, <coughs> excuse me, will count for our good. It will. There's a promise. It will count for good. Now, I had just about, when I was writing this sermon on Wednesday, I still wasn't feeling real good. I was just about convinced of that last phrase. The problems and pain will count for our good. And then I read this, uh, this um, on the UPI News story out of Jerusalem, a true story that I couldn't hardly believe. A woman from Tel Aviv found a cockroach in her living room. The woman stomped on the bug and tossed it into her toilet. When the critter refused to die, she sprayed an entire can of insecticide into the toilet bowl to finish it off and then closed the lid. Her unsuspecting husband came home from work minutes later, sat on the toilet seat, lit a cigarette, and when he finished smoking, he tossed the butt into the toilet. The cigarette ignited the insecticide fumes and burned the man badly, you know where. As paramedics carried the man down the steps of his house, they asked how he received the peculiar burns. When he responded, they laughed so hard, they accidentally dropped his stretcher, breaking the man's pelvis and ribs. Now, that's a bad day. <coughs> that's a bad day. That's when you say, okay, what is the purpose in these trials and tests? Because most of us, quite honestly, most of us have a hard time 
believing that there's purpose in our situations, right? That's why James concludes in verse 5, a key word, this is your third key word, ask. Ask. Consider, know, ask. Ask our God for wisdom and help. Listen to verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. You know, sometimes I've heard people say, well, I'm going through this terrible trial, this testing, uh, but I'm not going to ask God if uh, there's a purpose or a reason for that. Well, you know what? James said, of course it's okay to ask. Because you're trusting, you're considering that, okay, this could be good, I don't know how, and you're knowing that God is at work in what you're doing, and then you're asking, Lord, can you show me? Can you show me that something good will come out of this? I remember Sherry saying for months, you know, she, I remember the way they, they, we woke up after Tyler was killed, and she grabbed her Bible, and she plopped it on me, and she said, you show me where, where Tyler is right now. She wanted me to show her in Scripture why we can believe that Tyler was in heaven, right? But there was that sense that I need to know this. And that's the sense that you feel in James. It's okay. It's okay. Now, God may not answer you right away, you know, right when you need it. But he said, listen, I want you to know that even if you don't see it now, I am always at work. Remember, Paul Wilson told us that a few weeks ago. Jesus said, "Uh, my father is at work, and I'm always at work with him. I'm always at work. I'm always doing things for my children. I care so much, so deeply about you. I'm at work for you. Even though you don't understand this trial, this testing, believe me, God is going to do something good out of that. And believe me, while it's going on, I'll be with you. I'm not going anywhere. We need to ask. On my way to Denver, to the midwinter a couple weeks ago, I knew that some of my friends that had said they wanted to get together with me were going through some difficult times. One was being asked to leave his church. Another had gone through a moral failure. And, uh, I, and I said, as I was flying there, I said, Lord, you know I need some rest. You know, I need to have some input. You know, the services are amazing. And, but I also know that I need to be ready to help my friends and to be there for them. And so I asked I said, Lord, uh, in the midst of their trials and difficulties, in the midst of anything I might be going through, would you just kind of reveal that that there's something here that you want to tell these people? And so the first afternoon I was there, on Monday afternoon, I had lunch with a friend, and his wife was there, so she came along, the three of us. And Doug asked me, he said, um, how is it coming back to Denver? He realized that it was, we we served a church in Denver is when our son Tyler was killed. And I told him, I said, oh, you know, it's hard sometimes and this and that and the other. And, and then his wife said, well, what happened in Denver? And then I, I told our story. And when I was done telling the story, she was just filled with tears. And she said, my sister just last week lost a 10-year-old son. Can I give her your name, you and your wife, and so they can con- contact you if they want to? And c- can, I, can I do that? And, and of course, we were willing to do that and ask ask. God says, listen, I, I want to do something in your life. He- here's a prayer uh, that, and I wrote it in your bulletins if you'd want it. Here's a prayer. God, I don't like what is happening here, but teach me through it. 
Give me wisdom to handle this so that people see you through me. Help me to trust you and be obedient to you and to grow through this difficult time. Warren Worsby, Worsby, one of my favorite authors, writes this. We need wisdom so we will not waste the opportunities God is giving us to mature. Ask. Ask for wisdom. Lord, help me to know why this is happening, but more than that, help me to know how I can turn this into something for your glory. Consider, know, ask. I'd like to close with this wonderful story uh, from the Bible. Those of you who have been around the church and the Bible will know this story. It's found in the book of Daniel. And it's a story of three teenagers who refused to bend a knee to Nebuchadnezzar's God. They refused to bend a knee to a foreign God. They said, the only God that we love and serve is Jehovah, Yahweh. And we will only bend a knee to Him. Nebuchadnezzar said, listen guys, if you don't do what you're told, I'm going to throw you. We have this torture chamber that's pretty awesome. And uh, it's called a fiery furnace. And it was really basically a pit. And they would put people in it and they would just set it afire. And he said, if you guys don't bend a knee to my God, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw you in that fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, listen, uh, whether you throw us in the furnace or not, whether we burn or not, we will trust the Lord. And so he threw him in the furnace. And he lit the match. And it just went up in flames. And Nebuchadnezzar looked over the side of this, this pit to see how they were doing, you know, if they were well done yet or not. And he's looked over the side. And here's what he said he saw. He saw the three young men not being inflamed. And there was a fourth. The fourth, he said, was the son of man which we now know was the existence of a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the pit with them. That's the promise. God never promised Shadrach, Meshach, now here, here's the way that I would have written Daniel, and you probably would have written the same way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not bend a knee to Nebuchadnezzar's God. We will not, because we only love Jehovah God. And Nebuchadnezzar would have said, well, that takes a lot of faith. Good for you. You guys are blessed and I'm going to give you a lot of money. Okay. That's the way that I would have written the Bible. Okay. But that's not what happens. We live in this broken world. We've already talked about that. We live in this world that's going the opposite direction of Christ followers. It's not going to be easy. You are going to face tests. You are going to face trials. Some of your own doing. Some of other people's doing. And some just because you live in a broken world. And here's the reality of this. God says, I'm not going to remove the furnace from your life, but I will be with you in the midst of it. I'll be with you in the midst of it. No matter how your flesh is burning, no matter how your life is going, I promise you, I will be with you in the midst of it. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, so often we, we want to avoid hardship. We want to avoid trials and tests. We just want to have everything go so well and so beautiful and so wonderful. But here's your promise your promise is that you will take any bad situation, any bad circumstance, and by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ, you will make it good. And in the midst of that good, you will strengthen our faith. And no matter what we go through, you will always 
be by our side. You will never forsake us. You will never leave us alone. You will always be with us. Until that day when Christ breaks through the eastern sky and says, I will make all things brand new. Thank you, Father, for the truth of this. Thank you, Father, for the book of James. May we receive it as your word and live faithfully, considering how you are going to do great things in our lives in spite of the testings and trials that we go through. Give us strength to stand tall, recognizing that Christ is always with us. And we just pray these things, all of these things, in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.